Hello and welcome to the Synergy Autism Podcast. This is Barbara Avila and I am feeling very lucky today to have had the opportunity to have a conversation with the wonderful Jonathan Chase who has written a new book and it's for teachers and it's called From Surviving to Thriving talking about accommodations that teachers can make in their classroom not only for students with autism but for everyone and he really does a beautiful job of making sure that teachers feel supported in having a lot of students in their class and a lot on their plate in general. So he's very gracious in his book. I really highly recommend it. In this interview, Robert Parrish sits in with us and we get to hear from Jonathan as he shares his stories and his wisdom from the inside the mind of the student with autism. So listen in and please enjoy. I am really thrilled to be here. I don't get a chance to talk with both of you more informally um, on a day-to-day basis, and I'm super excited to talk to you, Jonathan, about your book and have Robert here to talk about some of his work, but really focus on what's happened for you in the last month (laughs) of a lot of um, crazy busy schedule and doing presentations and the whole um, culmination of this amazing book you have. So thank you for being here, both of you. Our pleasure, right, Jonathan? Yes. So I just want to start out with, um, you know, kind of trying to find out a little bit more about what the inspiration behind this book was for teachers. Well, it started years ago uh, going in as a guest speaker to universities to share some insight with teachers Mm -hmm. and people going into that industry about teachers. what the classroom looks like for students on spectrum and after doing that a number of times I heard the same questions come up over and over and then people started asking where they could get that information on paper. So so did you go in to these university classrooms knowing that they was that just an invitation in to, to find out more about autism and then you came to then wanting to write a book about for teachers or I started going in just to answer questions and Mm -hmm. share some of my experience Mm -hmm. and that grew into building more of a curriculum Mm -hmm. and then once I had a presentation written for them it made sense to start putting it on paper. You know what I really appreciate appreciate about both of you is that your journeys haven't been super smooth, right? You've had some rocky times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you could say that. Yeah. But both of you are so incredibly gracious. Like you're you're going you Jonathan had struggles with school and you're coming back now with having um, a very gracious attitude in your book that I really have read of trying to help people understand while also making life easier for them. How have you gotten from probably being pretty upset to the place that you are now that is amazing? Well, it's been a long time. Yeah. I think it takes time to process, Mm -hmm. but I look back and things are different now than when I was in school, but there's some things that aren't different enough. And that's what motivates me, is to to make sure that the things that happen to me aren't still happening, and that if they are, that people understand why they're happening and the importance of making the classroom work better for the next generation. So what do you see as still happening that frustrates you? 
I think in some environments, people still don't understand what autistic processing looks like. Mm -hmm. They read books on it or they see the bullet points on what is autism, but it's not the same as really understanding how the student perceives the environment. So I try to bring people inside sensory processing, what it really looks like to us. And I think sometimes people are surprised when they get the inside view because it's not what they expected. Tell me more about that. What, what do you think surprises people? I think it's the, the little things that most people aren't even aware of that can be really big issues for people like me on Spectrum. So uh, when I was in grade school, Every time we walked down the hallway, I would look up at the big red fire alarm Mm -hmm. on the wall. And I was anxious every day, worried that it might go off and Mm -hmm. startle me. Mm -hmm. At the time, I didn't know how to articulate that. So I just had this invisible anxiety every day over something that nobody else was aware of. Mm -hmm. And... I know there are kids out there who are going through similar challenges where there's things that maybe are such a part of their routine that they just accept that that anxiety is part of being at school. What kinds of behaviors do you think, and maybe they were things that you did looking back, but what what kind of behaviors do you think that teachers might see if a child is afraid of the fire alarm when they're walking by it, for example? What would be the outcome behavior of that? I think the the hard part is the anxiety and the behavior aren't always side by side. Hmm. So that anxiety builds up over time. And when they finally have a meltdown or an outburst or a reaction, it's not so easy to trace it back because you can't see all of the little things that are adding up. Mm -hmm. All you see is what happens right before the outburst. So it's more like sensory overload, not necessarily one particular anxiety event. Yeah, I I imagine a volcano, and the pressure builds up inside, and you can't see how much there is until it comes out the top, and it's very dramatic and visual. Mm -hmm. But from the outside, you can't see how close it is to blowing up. Right. I like that analogy. I might have to borrow that. Yeah, that's really good. And I think it's really true with kids that I've worked with, including my own son, that something can trigger Mm -hmm. what eventually is going to become a meltdown, but the trigger might be 10 minutes before. And this building up of the anxiety that ultimately explodes. And, you know, I used to watch Jack and, you know, I could kind of tell when something was going on. But there was never any real clue of when the eruption was going to happen. Kind of like Mount St. Helens was that way. Mm -hmm. You know, it was kind of spitting and spitting for months and months. And then suddenly, really without warning, it just went boom, you know. Mm -hmm. So I like the volcano analogy as well. It's (laughs) really good. I I think it's also hard because they're not always tied together. The Mm -hmm. outburst might have nothing to do with the fire alarm. And to the the teacher who's trying to figure out what happened, they wouldn't even put that on their list of things to investigate because it was a kid bumping them in line right. that set them off. Yeah, yeah. So from the outside, they don't even see that all of these things are connected. 
Well, and what's funny is that we then write behavior reports and things like that in regards to being bumped in line Mm -hmm. rather than bringing down the anxiety about the alarm because we have no idea because or, you know, the culmination of stress that happened. Or I think sometimes we approach behaviors as if all of these different pockets of anxiety are isolated. Mm -hmm. We've got our sensory anxiety and our social anxiety and our transition challenges, and they're all independent of one another. But I think they all stack on top of each other. Mm -hmm. So even if you address one area, it's not going to prevent the meltdown. You have to look at all of them simultaneously and design accommodations that work on multiple levels. You know what I really appreciated also in your book is that you talked about the idea of control and helping somebody feel in control of what's going on rather than just putting accommodations that are adult mandated sort of. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, I think a lot of the time when we try to help people, we take away their control or we We don't empower them while we are supporting them. Mm -hmm. So the example that I use in the book is the way we approach a student after there's been an altercation with another student. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to help them, but we say, I need to know what happened yesterday on the playground. And by approaching the student that way, I'm saying, we're going to talk about it right now. We're going to communicate verbally. We're going to talk in this location on the subject I've decided on. Mm -hmm. You're not going to have any processing time or prep time. And it's just going to be you and me with these parameters I've set. So we're trying to help the student, but we've backed them into a corner. And the student has two choices. Either they can do everything the teacher's way, or they can say no, and then they're in control. So it makes sense that a student isn't going to want to participate if their options are have all the control or none of the control. So I try to look for little ways that we as guides or mentors or educators can bring the student in and have some back and forth where we're making concessions and we're asking opinions and we're giving choices. Sometimes it can be really small. If the student needs to write down what happened on the playground, we can ask if they want to use a pencil or a pen. Mm -hmm. Do they want to write it on paper or on the computer? Mm -hmm. Those choices don't matter Mm -hmm. as far as getting the information. But for someone who has a sensory processing disorder, there could be a huge difference between writing a letter or typing a letter. And just asking that question engages the student and it shows them that we care absolutely what behavior do you think would be shown by a kid who is backed into that corner or not feeling control can you imagine what they might look like to a teacher yeah i think the most common thing we see is a refusal to participate Mm -hmm. the student just checks out and everyone will do it differently some students might do it dramatically and make it very clear and some will just zone out and sort of fade away, and they'll, they won't engage. So you see it, those are the two most common ways that I see. Robert, do you have any examples from your life of when 
maybe your child or somebody you knew like felt like they needed maybe more control and they just took it that way? <laughs> well, the typical kids for sure yeah. <laughs> would be the ones who would, who would uh, come to mind first because they were always making what they wanted known. And I think in terms of Jack, his, for him it was because he's nonverbal mostly nonverbal. It was always about his body language. Mm -hmm. And I really would study him. Mm -hmm. And you know, I would get cues on what was going to work and what he was resisting. Um, not that he couldn't say no. Um, one time he really surprised me and dropped an F-bomb. <laughs> along with the no and it was f-bomb no and i was like whoa dude where'd you hear that and then i thought oh yeah i know where you heard that that was, that was from me probably from me when i was <laughs> yeah. a kid yeah. so uh you know and and the tonality in his in his voice was always a clue as well uh -huh. you know and eye contact or more lack of eye contact. Was so it was a clue that he potentially was feeling like I'm backed in a corner. I need yeah. some oh, choice here. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and for him, again, and this is something that I think is not untypical uh, with children and adults with that diagnosis. He would know his receptive language was always really good, mm -hmm. and so he would know when something was coming up, and you could just kind of feel. You know, you could feel it. Or certain sounds. You know, you're talking about the fire alarm, uh, which is a visual thing. For for Jack, his, his aversions were to sounds, you know. The whole idea of figuring out the best way to connect with someone who, even if they're verbal, can't necessarily explain what they're feeling. I mean, mm -hmm. look at us, neuro, you know, you and I, the neurotypicals in the room. You know, we can't always explain what's going on in our little volcano, right? You know, mm -hmm. we know maybe that we're uncomfortable, but, you know, do we really know why we're kind of uptight today? Right. You and know? We, we sometimes assume that other people can just read it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We assume that we're putting out those signals or cues. Yeah. But even neurotypical people don't always get it right. So true. You know, I'm going to use that to jump back into your book a little bit, because another part that I really appreciate is that you do, um, it seems like, you know, I read some of the book early on, and then some of the changes that you were telling me I might enjoy. I, I enjoyed one was that you would kind of dip into your own experience, but then also how that relates to a, a, a lot of different people, including kids who are typically developing as well. So I just, I loved how you were able to kind of ride that line. I'd love for you to talk more about that introspection and seeing the big picture at the same time. That must have been a process for you. Yeah, well, the, the first question I asked was, how can we make these work for the teacher, these accommodations? Because a lot of really specific autism stuff mm -hmm. is really hard to sustain if that's not all you do. And even when it is all we do, it's still hard to manage all those details every day. Mm -hmm. So the first question was, how can we make it work for the teacher? Because I think there's a lot of material out there that's written as best practice, but it's not realistic. Mm -hmm. And I found that the solution was a lot of these things aren't just good for autistic kids. They're good for all kids. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense from my perspective, 
to implement as much as we can for the whole classroom and do the same thing for everyone there. And if it's targeted and well implemented, it's gonna be especially useful to kids who were like me or to kids on spectrum or with other processing disorders or differences. But if we set the accommodations up globally and environmentally, I think it makes it better for those kids because they're not singled out and better for the teacher because they don't have to completely change how they teach when I show up. Yeah, absolutely. And that's great. You know, when I think about that and you know, I have a lot of recent experience with, like I just came here today from being with my grandson who's a year and a half. And pretty much all of the strategies that I use with him play strategies, getting him to do what I think is important for him to do. It's all stuff that I learned and practiced with Jack. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think that, I mean, floor time is a great example, right? Floor time is, I learned about it because of my son's diagnosis, met with Dr. Greenspan, you know, several times. And then I started implementing it with my daughter. Now I'm implementing it with my grandchildren. Mm. And it's such a beautiful thing for typical kids. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's just awesome. And so to your point about setting these accommodations to be global within a classroom, what kid isn't going to like making his or her own choices about certain stuff? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, it's almost as if we can take, you know, what you've written and what other people have put together to accommodate specifically for the autism population and say, this should be for everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's nothing cooler, I have to say, than getting down on the floor, you know, back to floor time with a year and a half old kid mm -hmm. and just letting him lead the way. I mean, it's simple. This stuff is not, you know, it's not complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, like you were talking about with, with the, you know, putting a kid and saying, okay, I want to know about what happened on the playground. Would you rather type it? Would you rather use a pencil? Would you rather use a pen? Duh. Right? <laughs> I mean, really, it's amazing to me. But, you know, unfortunately, I think from what I've seen of the educational system, you know, they're pretty much locked in. I mean, you know, you have an incident mm -hmm. with a kid, you're going to go to the principal's, whatever. There's some kind of standard operating procedure that's not going to work even for the typical kids. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the, the challenges is what you describe as humanity. And that's just, <laughs> yeah. that's just right. people. Yeah, yeah. People yeah, yeah. as a whole yeah. tend to be more comfortable when they know what's going to happen, that's when they feel in control, yeah. when they're not surprised by sudden changes. Yeah. Yeah. But when we add in a disability diagnosis, it's like we're no longer talking about humans and people. Right. With this completely different subset with a whole different set of rules and expectations. And I think the, the important piece is comparing neurotypical and autistic and finding that a lot of accommodations work for everybody. We're all still humans. We're all still <laughs> much more alike than we are different. And if we approach accommodations that way, mm -hmm. I think it makes more sense. And sometimes as adults, we could still look at when we're at our best and use that as a guide for how to support children. Absolutely. And, you know, it's almost funny to think about the word accommodations. 
right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, that should be, the accommodations really should be really standard practice. Or really good teaching, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. But the, but the human element of it is mm -hmm. what's really important, you know? And it gets back to, you know, the golden rule, right? I mean, you treat everybody, whatever that, however that's something. Do you know the golden rule? Treat everyone as you want to be treated. Thank that's you. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, man. I've been reading your Bible, haven't you? <laughs> I do think that's a really interesting whole topic in the whole field of autism that um, for some reason we kind of made people with autism need this whole other set of accommodations and things like that where we have treated it that way when it's, you know, everything you see on the autism spectrum is on in typical development, only a matter of extreme, which we were talking about earlier. But um I just I think that's fascinating that all of a sudden we decided that it's supposed to be all these this different subset of how we teach when really it's just really good teaching that can be really helpful for everybody, mm -hmm. um, but that kids on the autism spectrum need that accommodation or that good teaching more so potentially than others. Well, it's in the environment too. You know, we talked uh, before when we sat down about this amazing experience I had down in Florida at the uh, Ernie Hills uh, Center of Excellence. And as a neurotypical person, mm -hmm. I walked into this building with LED lighting and windows, you know, <laughs> elevated. It made me feel good to be in sure. there, yeah. you know? Yeah. It was not your typical, you know, fluorescent lights with <laughs> all these distractions and bright colors. Did you get your weighted blanket as you went in and sat I would have liked to have had your... one. You know, what's wrong with have I you know. have you used a weighted blanket, one. right? I, I would totally want a, there's... I have a cat. You have a cat, oh, all right. Go. All right. Dog, yeah. But you know, you think about that and you think about the idea of taking, again, back to this quote, accommodation and applying it to everyone. Mm -hmm. Who doesn't want to sit on a ball and bounce, really? There might be some who don't. Well, maybe. But, you know, a weighted blanket. I We yeah. had a like a kind of the, a squeeze machine, right, sort of thing that we used to use. It was amazing. The only thing I didn't like out of the whole accommodation of our autistic repertoire was spinning. I couldn't. See, I would, I would hate the squeeze machine, I have to say. Yeah. I would be so claustrophobic, so I would not be in that realm. But, I mean, that really comes to something that you talk about in the book also is just how even though there's a lot of similarities, there are differences too and that needing to accommodate for those. Um, anyway, I wanna switch gears a little bit and I wanna ask you probably a little bit of a tougher question. So I have a lot of families who have teenagers who are a little bit more passive than it sounds like you were potentially, but I don't know, um, who are in their bedrooms playing video games. And instead of being as um, motivated as it sounds like you were to play music and things like that. So I'm just, I'm curious about that time in your life and where you think that kind of spark came from that has got you, you know, to keep going. I think I was always self-aware and I, I became a pretty forceful self-advocate. So I well, didn't... Where did that come from? Like, how did you get there? Do you know? Or was it just your personality? I think I've always been stubborn. <laughs> and I reached a point in my life where I felt like I'd had so many challenges with bullies and teachers and mm -hmm. this this world that didn't seem to, to respect me because I was different mm -hmm. that I decided that no one else could decide my outcomes but me. Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to let other people determine if I was successful or not. 
not bullies or teachers who didn't care or school administrators who just wanted to shuffle me off to be someone else's problem. And I felt like, really, it comes back to control. I wanted to take control, and I couldn't handle life where I felt like everyone else was in control all the time. If the teacher gave me what I needed, then I'd be successful, and if they didn't, I'd fail. That means they have all the control, and I'm reliant on them. Mm -hmm. So I reached a point where I would go to the teacher and say, this is what I need. Either you can give me what I need, and I will be successful in your class, or I will choose not to participate, and I will not attend your class anymore. Mm -hmm. So well, I, eventually that happened, right? Several times. Yeah. Do you want to talk, tell any stories around that? Oh, I have a lot of stories. <laughs> okay. But, but it started in grade school mm -hmm. with uh, one way I found to take control was... I got beat up on the playground every day. Mm -hmm. I learned that if I got in trouble, they'd take recess away as a punishment. If I was in detention, I was sheltered from the bullies. Mm -hmm. So the best way to protect myself was to make sure that I was punished with no recess. I see a lot of kids who go to the bathroom a lot and stay there for a long time mm -hmm. during times like that because it's a... It's an excuse to be able to get out of something that's tough. And then people just see it as your behavior rather than what was happening out on the playground. Mm-hmm. And in the bathroom, it's usually an environment people don't come in to bother you. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah. Nobody's going to bug me there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, that's where it started was... I didn't realize at the time. I think it was more instinctive than calculated. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, I became more forceful in my advocacy. And I think it's because for so long, I felt like I had no control mm -hmm. that I couldn't ease into it. I just had to go take all of it as much as I could every day and to fight to have control. So I, I see that the other side of that is sometimes you just give up. Mm -hmm. If you've been through... 10 years of the education system and nobody's worked to understand you. Nobody's extended their hand and said, let's work together. Right. I completely understand that we have teenagers who have just given up. If no one's going to respect me, then why look for it? If no one's going to offer accommodations or ask what I need, I will just assume that they don't care. Mm. How, what advice would you give a parent of a teenager? that was going through very similar, was not doing well in school, was starting to give up, and they could see it. Because parents usually know and can see it mm -hmm. coming, you know? I always start with motivation. What is it that drives the individual? What makes them feel good? And, and we also have to ask that question without any judgment. I think sometimes that we say, well, they like playing video games, and we dismiss that, like, that, that's not valid. Instead, we just have to look deeper. What is it about the video game? I think that's the piece that I think that, that people don't do yet. You're right, I think they dismiss it, or they just go, oh, video games, okay, so now we'll get, a, we'll get them involved in creating video games or something, but still it's a little more surface, I think, than you're talking mm -hmm. about, right? So for online gaming, sometimes it's the community. Mm -hmm. Every day I put on that headset and I pick up that controller, and now I have friends. I have a social circle. 
we we all have common interests i know what we're going to talk about i know what the boundaries and the parameters are i know exactly what's going to happen and what is and isn't appropriate or how to read these people through the games we play for some people it's not even the social piece but what happens within the game is it the creative aspect is it the freedom or is the game more of a, a shelter when i go into this mode and i sit at the tv i can shut out everything else and turn off my brain i can focus on the controller and the screen and i don't have to worry about all the other stress in my life mm-hmm. so that's the one i hear a lot so just playing the video game mm-hmm. sometimes it's not about the game it's about the connection or the shelter or where that experience takes you so then once we can figure that out we could start looking for other th- other things that tie into that feeling so with some of my clients who were into gaming i'd say well there's lots of gaming that you can do face to face let's try dungeons and dragons let's try tabletop gaming or card games or gaming conventions other environments that are going to scratch that itch mm-hmm. and if it needs to be a shelter if it's their safe space then we need to look at what are they being sheltered from what are they running away from and how do we address that cuz taking the video games away doesn't solve the problem right. if anything we have teenagers who are going to look for another way to avoid the things that are causing them anxiety mm-hmm. and for some teenagers video games might be the safest option yeah. compared to some of the other ways people escape from their problems i try to help people understand that you can't just take away a behavior without replacing it with exactly. something that is going to work for that person and we have to understand where it comes from mm-hmm. nothing exists in a vacuum and for teenagers sometimes it's backtracking to what what led them to the point where this is what they want to invest all their energy in mm-hmm. what worked or didn't work before now mm-hmm. so it's not as simple as saying he plays too much minecraft let's take it away and then the the other piece is motivation what drives them and what do they want and how do we tie that into the activities they're engaging in and sometimes i don't think we have those conversations cuz we're so focused on right now mm-hmm. you're playing too much minecraft and your grades suck right. so let's focus on those two things yeah and i don't think that that's where you find the answers so i like to to take a step back and ask bigger questions where do you want to be next year or in 5 years or Do you want to play Minecraft forever? <laughs> okay, well that's going to require some things too. Minecraft isn't free. Well, how are you going to pay for Minecraft when you turn 18 and mom and dad won't pay for the internet bill anymore? <laughs> right. So even that is a valid motivational tool. Mm-hmm. I need to make just enough money to get Minecraft and an ethernet cable. Right. <laughs> even that i think is a valid first step sure but sometimes with the video game piece i think we dismiss it way too quickly and we don't go deep enough mhm i i know that one of the reviews on your book so far that i was looking at 
did talk about how your book was incredibly helpful for them as a parent. And I think that's um, really exciting and something that needs to be out there and why I'm doing this podcast and really, you know, highlighting parents too, is I think that your book really does a nice job of helping parents have that better understanding of what will work, not just in the classroom, but also in those conversations with them at home, um, being able to make accommodations at home that are similar. So... Yeah, it's written aimed at general ed teachers and Mm -hmm. supports in the classroom. But I think at its core, it's about understanding the perspective of people on spectrum. And I think that once you can look at the world through their eyes, then you can apply those tools anywhere to the home or the workplace or anywhere. It's not as specific to the classroom. I actually wrote down a quote. It's early on in the book. Take a step back and consider their perspective and experience may be different from yours and from that of their peers. I think just that said a lot about what your book is about, of really understanding where they're coming from rather than just trying to put accommodations on them, Mm -hmm. really helping them understand them. Again, I loved your focus on self-advocacy and ensuring that the student feels that the accommodations are things that they can take on and that are meaningful for them. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about some of the specific accommodations and how that works into Mm self-advocacy. So uh, an example I use in the book is a student who's supposed to have a pencil and paper every day, and they don't. Mm -hmm. So we really have two options. We can either put it on the student and give them the tools to go and get the, the things that they need, Or we can put it on the teacher and say, you have to monitor this kiddo every day and make sure he has a pencil and paper. Hmm. And there are a number of ways we can balance those responsibilities. So students who need more support have, they don't have the entire burden on their Hmm. shoulders, but it doesn't mean we have to build the accommodation where they're completely reliant on someone else. Yeah. So it's, it's a little piece, but it's a start. Well, and it supports the person, the student, in learning self-advocacy in general and kind of that transfer responsibility to them mm-hmm. that will be beneficial for lifelong. Yeah, I, I think that we can start earlier with a lot of kids in teaching the basics of self-advocacy. Mm-hmm. And everybody in the adult world has to advocate for themselves on some level. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what their diagnosis is, or if they have one or don't, or how old they are, or how independent they are. Everybody has to advocate for themselves. Mm -hmm. But sometimes in the disability world, we take that away. We take that expectation away, and we just assume that it's not a skill they're going to learn. Or we say it's a skill we'll work on later when things get easier. But the longer you go in life without that skill, the harder everything is. Yeah. So I, I think the other piece that happens with that, though, is that this is the difference between autism and typical development is in typical development, kids will often push back and be telling you what, you know, dry, trying to take that responsibility a little bit more. I mean, it's kind of back to that giving control thing where kids, I don't know if you agree with me, but students with autism often might not they might choose to be a little bit more passive or if somebody else is going to do it, they'll just let them do it. 
and that you have to kind of push that like, no, no, this is your responsibility and I am going to transfer it to you. And I think it's also that the students on Spectrum are processing a lot more than their peers. Mm. Their peers don't have to worry about the fire alarm. So oh, they have yeah. more energy to invest in advocacy Interesting. and awareness. But yeah. a student who's totally overwhelmed, he's dealing with the sound of the students and the lights and the smells and all this unexpected stuff and the, the chaos of every day. You probably about kind of basic safety sometimes, right? Yeah. So how can you move into like tra- taking more responsibility if yeah. you're focused on that? Yeah. He probably doesn't have as much energy left, right? To to go and say, hey, excuse me, my pencil broke. What do I do? Hmm. So he's just gonna sit there and go, I I I don't know. I have no answers, or I have no energy to go seek them out. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes, the other piece is missing expectations where the, the, the guide or teacher or parent, whoever, doesn't make it clear because they assume that the student or child understands the expectations. I mean, really what I was intrigued by was you're talking about how sensory can get so much in the way that it's going to get in the way of being able to go, hey, you know, I want to take some responsibility here. Oh, the other piece is uh, the, the expectations. Mm-hmm. So uh, an example that I use a lot when I'm presenting at conferences or in classrooms is when I was in school, I remember an instruction that the teacher gave early on. She said, every day you need to start the morning sitting at your desk when the bell rings with a pencil and a sheet of paper. And every time I speak at a conference or a classroom, I tell the same story and I ask the same question. What happens if I don't? What happens if I don't have a pencil or paper or I'm late to my desk or my pencil is broken and no one ever has an answer because the teacher didn't tell us. (laughs) So everyone else in that classroom could just assume what would happen Mm. and they could work from that assumption. I'm going to ask someone for help. Or I'll just assume that it's not the end of the world. Mm-hmm. But black and white thinkers don't work that way. So we get stuck. And either we don't know how to function because we can't follow the rules, or we assume the worst. And you end up with a second grader who's terrified every morning because they don't know what the consequences are. So they assume that they're going to get kicked out of school. I'm going to flunk the second grade and my education is over and mom and dad are going to be so mad at me because I forgot my pencil. That's more the black and white thinking that it's yeah catastrophic or going to be okay. So how we reframe that though is really easy to fix. Uh-huh. All the teacher has to say is if you don't have a pencil and paper, go to the drawer and get some or ask your neighbor for help. If you're late to your desk, it's okay. Just try to be quiet and not disrupt your peers when you sit down. Mm -hmm. Just adding that little piece at the end Mm -hmm. makes the instruction work for everyone in the room and makes sure that it won't trip up black and white thinkers like me. Mm -hmm. 
So that's my goal is to show that sometimes the solutions are really simple. And once we understand how the student thinks and where they're coming from, it's not changing everything to make it work for them. It's just adding that one little piece or that one little change and framing it in the way that works for them. And what I what I liked also in your book is that not only working for the, that student, but working for the other students as well. And you had a, a couple accommodations at least in there that um, I'd love to hear you talk about of how to involve peers in actually helping with those accommodations where, I mean, that's that's great for everybody again. Sure. One of the chapters is about mentoring. And I think that's a missing piece in not just autism, but a lot of disability support mm -hmm. is we assume that the student with challenges will always be the one who struggles and that any interaction that they have with their peers will always be trying to catch up. Mm -hmm. And that can be so frustrating. I think for anybody, if you go through your whole life and every day you're the only person at the office asking for help, mm -hmm. How long can you work there? And after a point, you might even resent your co-workers just because it always feels like they know what's going on and you're struggling. Such a good point. You're always being judged by a different standard because you're expected to fail. So we have these kids who feel just beat down and worn out because that expectation is always different for them and than inferior, everyone else. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we expect them to fail, so we put that burden on them. Mm -hmm. So I have a chapter on mentoring, which is about flipping the script mm -hmm. and looking for ways to give students on spectrum the other experience, to let them lead, to let them guide their peers, to let them be the one another student comes to for help. And it's such a powerful feeling. I think everyone Everyone who's human feels good when they help someone else and they have that nonverbal communication where they see the appreciation that the other person shares. Absolutely. So why don't we give that to students on spectrum? Just because <laughs> there's some things they struggle with, we're taking away the expectation of experiencing a core part of what it is to be human and connect with other people. So an easy solution is pairing the student up with younger students. Not all the time, but in specific settings where they can be a guide. Mm -hmm. When I was in school, I was in, I think it was the fourth grade, and I was helping the second grade recorder class, playing <laughs> the little plastic flutes. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about the recorder. I still don't know how to play it. I don't know how it works. I don't know how to read the sheet music. But every week I would go to that classroom and the teacher would tell me what guidance to give. And I'd walk down saying, here's your sheet music. Remember to keep your elbows up. <laughs> and for those 30 or 40 minutes every week, I was a guide. I was a leader. Yeah. If those kids needed something, they'd ask me. Mm -hmm. And... I think it was a really valuable thing to experience and something we can give to every kid. That's also really, somebody, whether it was you or somebody else, really saw your gift of music 
must have early on to then be, tap into whether that's your special interest or whether that's your um, just what you're really good at but tapped into that to be a mentor to somebody else. Actually, I had no experience with music at, at that, that age. Point. Oh. <laughs> music wasn't a thing in my life yeah. at all. Uh-huh. But I look back and I, I ask myself, why was it that of all the things, yeah. that was the class that I wanted to go volunteer in and assist in? Yeah. And I realized that it wasn't music, it was the teacher. Oh. She didn't put up with any nonsense. She didn't allow kids to be nasty or mean or bully or elbow each other. Hmm. She was very black and white. This is what we're going to do. This is the agenda. These are the expectations. And while you're in my classroom, you are going to follow the rules. So she was clear. She was very clear. Uh And she didn't let the kids get away with some things that the other teachers would. So it was also a safe place because of that. Yeah, I felt safe. I knew what to expect. And I think it was easier to read what was and wasn't acceptable in her mm-hmm. classroom. So I didn't, at the time, I didn't understand all that. I just knew I liked that teacher and that was where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. But it, it makes sense looking back that her style fit me enough that I wanted to spend more time there. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting to think about your book being called From Surviving to Thriving, because really that is what you're doing is the all the accommodations you talk about are really making a safe place, right? So that learning can happen and thriving can happen. Yeah. A lot of school for people like me is just trying to get by. We're not necessarily trying to learn or grow. We're just trying to survive the day. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when we look at supports and accommodations, we still approach it that same way. Let's just get through this semester and then we'll figure out what to do for next year. Mm-hmm. Let's just try not to fail this class. And if we can do that, if we can get through with a C, we'll say the whole team was successful. Mm-hmm. And we don't look ahead. I think that for for everyone else, school is there to learn and grow and prepare yourself for life as an adult in the real world. And for people with autism, school is where we invest our whole life just trying to get by and we'll deal with being humans and learning about life once we're done with school. Mm. And so we have this whole generation of young adults now who've been brought up that way. They leave school and they're missing all of these key tools and experiences and skills Mm -hmm. that they need to thrive in adulthood. So is that gonna be your next book? I don't have the energy for a next (laughs) book just yet. One at a time. It'll be a while. What are your next adventures? Are you ready to think about those or are you- A nap. A nap. (laughs) But why don't you, Share a little bit about what you are doing now with your book, traveling. Uh, I travel around the country speaking at conferences Mm -hmm. uh, to teachers and parents and different professionals in the disability realm. Um, Do you you enjoy it? Yeah. What do you like about it? Um, I like connecting with people. Mm -hmm. And I like the feeling of being up on that stage and seeing people light up with a new idea. A new understanding, probably. 
Yeah, and I think about the ripple effect that mm. if you go up there and you talk to a couple hundred people, and if every one of them takes just one little piece out of that speech, and they take it home and they apply it to their students, how many kids is that going to affect? And if I go to a university and I speak to new teachers who are just going into the field, how many students are they going to see in their career? And if they make one little change, how many meltdowns can we avert over the next 20 years with one accommodation? And that's what really drives me to do what I do. I think that's a perfect place to finish. Thank you for listening to the Synergy Autism podcast. If you would like to learn more about Synergy Autism Center, check out our website at www.synergyautismcenter.com. Synergy is spelled S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y. And we are updating the podcast there as well, so you can find all the episodes there. Thank you.